Welcome back to Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm Rob Walling. Today, you get to hear me have a conversation with Tom Merritt, the host of Daily Tech News Show, Cord Killers, Current Geek, It's a Thing, Sword and Laser, Know a Little More. He has more podcasts than any five people I know. And this episode is a little different. Tom Merritt is not a SaaS founder. He has not written a book for SaaS founders, but I'm fascinated with people who are able to ship something every day for years. In fact, decades, as you'll hear us get into it. And I ask him about his thought process and then like the physical process of how he has shipped Daily Tech News Show five days a week for a decade. Like talk about grind and, and discipline to get it out. I also dive in, he's a tech pundit, a journalist slash pundit, but he's very balanced. And I've always admired his ability to summarize complex situations and then talk about both sides of them. And he doesn't get so far out in left field or out in right field like so many pundits do. They do it for the shock value and he doesn't. So if you know who Tom Merritt is and you've heard him on one of these shows, I'm sure this will be fun for you. If you haven't and you came here today for some SaaS-focused tactics, this is not your episode. And you can obviously feel free to skip this one, but I really enjoy the conversation and I do think that there is a lot to get out of someone like Tom Merritt, who has been so successful and shipped so much amazing content into the world. Before we dive into that, if you're not subscribed to our YouTube channel, we're putting out really incredible content every week, at least one video, sometimes two. Recently, Anor Volset and I did a live stream about the SVB bank collapse. And then every week I'm recording something to deal with SaaS. It's almost like 10 to 15 minute Rob solo adventures, but you get to see my smiling face on the camera. Microconf.com slash YouTube if you want to check that out. And with that, let's dive into my conversation with Tom Merritt. Tom Merritt, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on Startups for the Rest of Us. Hey, Rob, thanks for having me, man. This is this is super fun. Yeah, I'm ex- I'm excited to dig into your experience. And we we're talking offline that you're maybe not a typical guest for this show, but I think there's a lot that you bring to the table in your experience that folks can uh, can learn from. First question I had for you is part of your career. Your early career was at CNET hosting Buzz Out Loud with Mollywood from like 2004 to 2010. And then you left and went to This Week in Tech, which is actually where I first discovered you on, there was a show that was Tech News Daily, and I actually forget the name of it now. It was Tech News Today. Tech News Today, that's right. I try to name, uh, ever since Buzz Out Loud, I try to name shows as boring as possible. It's the Microsoft approach to naming. It's literal. Well, the SEO is great because then when I type into Apple Podcasts today, because it's a daily tech news show is your show today. Yeah, they, they show that. Right. That's yep. the current one. And it is a daily tech news show. Mm-hmm. But in 2013, and this is on your Wikipedia page, so it's not as if I'm uh, <laughs> exposing anything, but you, you had moved to LA because your wife started working for YouTube. And so suddenly you're remote. And on your Wikipedia page, it says that you were let go because Leo, the head of the network, wanted people who were there local. And I remember thinking to myself at this time, because I heard about it, what's he going to do? Because it's, uh, there aren't that many po- tech podcast networks in the world, you know? And at that point, you made a, sh- you made a shift to basically go into business for yourself. You want to talk us through that? Yeah, I did that for, for a number of reasons that some were intentional and some were not. 
on the one hand, I had a friend who I still do a show called Chord Killers with, Brian Brushwood, who was taking his own things independent and had been for years, who was encouraging me, gave me a lot of great advice uh, and sort of helped me along that path. At the same time, I was also planning to start Daily Tech News Show with someone else who was going independent. And so I thought I was not going to be alone. And I did get severance uh, from Twit. So I was able to have a little bit of runway and I sat down with my wife and I was like, well, you know, I've got this much. Why don't I just try all this stuff on my own and see how it goes? But mostly I just wanted to do things my way. And after having been at Tech TV, CNET, and This Week in Tech, I felt like I had gathered enough intelligence uh, and the tools online had gotten good enough that I could make make a go of it solo. Uh, and so I just I gave it a I gave it a gamble. I, I decided to to try it out. My motivation was I want to do my own show and I don't want to have to mess with anything else. I just want to do my show and things like Patreon. And at the time I was using Google Hangouts uh, on air made it easy to do that without having to put a bunch of capital outlay to hire a bunch of producers or have a studio and all of that. Well, and that's the thing is 10 years later, you're still doing it. So it's obviously worked out. You were the first person I believe I ever heard who mentioned Patreon. I had never heard of it. It was early. And it feels like if you had perhaps left Twit five years earlier, that it would have been such a different road, right? I don't know how you would have got, you would ask for donation. It just wouldn't have worked, right? Yeah. Uh, I had been doing independent podcasts. One of the reasons I left CNET to go to This Week in Tech was because I wanted to do podcasts that were independent. And because CBS owned CNET, they would let you do it, but they made it hard. Uh, you had to go get them approved. There were certain ones they were like, well, you can do it, but you can't make money off of it. But I was doing some and monetizing them with ads, but it wasn't a lot. So I thought, well, I could, I could try to make the, a go of this by, you know, boosting the numbers and, and doing ads. And I, I was going to take ads on it. But like you say, Patreon had launched just about six, seven months before. And it was Brian who said, let's do our show, which we had been doing on This Week in Tech as well. He's like, let's do our own version of it independent. Let's do it on Patreon. I had messed around with Patreon and almost applied it to a different show because I do way too many shows. We almost used Patreon when it launched for a show I do called It's a Thing, but we decided against it. So when Brian was like, let's try it with Cord Killers, it worked like gangbusters immediately. And so even though I launched Daily Tech News Show without a Patreon, uh, with the idea of just building an audience and going advertising, Cord Killers was doing so well with it. By January 23rd, I was like, well, you know what? I should, I should launch a Patreon for DTNS and see how well it can do with just Patreon. Uh, and and it, it like you said, if I had launched it a year early before Patreon, I probably would have been doing an, an ad-only model. You're right. A couple things on that. In, in SaaS, people try freemium and it usually doesn't work. Like if you're funded, you have buckets of money, you can do it. But freemium is like, well, you can use it up until a certain point, right? And certainly asking for donations wouldn't work. Costs and all this stuff to acquire customers, blah, blah, blah. So I remember when you were talking about Patreon, it sounded to me like either a freemium model or a uh, donate to help support the show. And I remember my heart breaking and thinking, oh, this isn't going to work. And how wrong, uh -huh. I, but how wrong I was, right? I mean, because yeah. is it public? Um, like if I went on to Patreon, does it show how much you make from DTNS? Not anymore. It was okay. back then it, it, by default. 
they don't show it anymore. I remember you ten or fifteen k a month was the last I remembered. It was years ago, so I don't. I'm not going to ask how much you make, but that's the kind of level. And you have a very large audience, and it's it's obviously a broad audience because a lot of folks can listen to it. But you pretty quickly, it seemed like we're making you know a full time income, and then you would hit a mark, and then you'd bring on a co host who I assume you were able to pay at that point. Yeah, in the in the earliest days of Patreon, they even don't they don't do this anymore, but they let you set goals to say, well, if we get to this amount of money or maybe this amount of patrons, we will do X. And so our first goal was we'll stay ad free. We won't go and get ads. Now, years later, I did create an ad supported free feed for people who weren't patrons to say like, look, if you don't want to support Patreon, here's your option. You can listen to the one with ads and that that exists now too. But in the beginning, it was like, we'll just we'll just go ad free for for everybody. And, and so once we hit that mark, I was like, well, if you like this person that I have on, what if I had them on once a week? If we hit this mark, we'll bring this person on once a week. So we did that with Veronica Belmont, uh, who I had worked on Buzz Out Loud with, Patrick Beja, who's a French tech podcaster, Darren Kitchen, uh, if you know Hack 5, you know Darren Kitchen, Scott Johnson, and Justin Robert Young. And eventually I had, within a year, I had set enough goals and met enough goals to bring on one person every day to help me out. Was there ever a sense of doubt or fear? Because a lot of folks who make the leap are like, well, I used to get a paycheck and now I don't. You know, I know you, you've mentioned your wife, Eileen was very supportive and she had a full, you know, has a full-time job. So that makes it a little easier, but which was huge. yeah. But what were the, what was the emotional aspect like for the first three, six months? Well, I think the, the fear that this was not going to work, uh, at any moment, it could all just fall apart. Finally left me last year. Really? Yeah. And I'm, Whoa. Not, I'm, I'm saying, I'm saying that it, in it to be funny, but also it's true. Those first five years, particularly, uh, I constantly hit marks where I'd be sitting at my my table preparing for the show, just thinking, I should probably just just go get a job. This is too hard. But it was so rewarding when I did it. And the audience was so supportive that it always turned me around. Those moments became less and less. But I still kept thinking, well, it can't go on forever. At some point, it's just going to fizzle out. And it really is only in the past couple of years, and we're now in our 10th year, where I'm pretty sure that even if it's fading out now, it's not fading out fast enough to ignore it. And we can be serious about this. It's a going concern, not just a thing that I'll do as long as it lasts. Uh, it, It took a long time for me for that to sink in. You mentioned that some days you would get up and say, this is just too hard but you would do it anyways. What was hard about it? Is it just putting the show together as a grind sometimes to find the stories and, and do it? Yeah. Well, there's that, right? And I have a bigger staff now than I did uh, in those first five years, but I had a producer, Jenny Josephson, for those first five years, who is very experienced in television, not as familiar with the tech world. So I wasn't relying on her for content. I was relying on her for production support. And that was incredibly helpful. Don't get me wrong. But the vast amount of content preparation was on me. 95% of it was on me. My co-hosts, of course, brought in part of it, but I wasn't making them spend all day with me when they were on. They were just coming on for the show. So writing and researching and deciding, okay, what are the things that are going to keep people interested? What are the things that are important to people? And then reading enough about them to make sure I don't get it wrong. And then running into people who were critical, 
who were dismissive, who were saying, oh, well, you, you didn't do this well enough. You, you, you screwed this, this fact up. A lot of times those were people where I'm like, no, you're misunderstanding or you didn't hear what I said, which would frustrate me. Sometimes they were right. I'm like, oh, no, I screwed that up. I got that wrong. So, so that wears at you because people say something nice to you, like your show is great. You're the best. Uh, and people do say that to me. You remember it for 10, 15 minutes. People say you screwed this up. For me, I remember that all week and it just, it just haunts me. So it was that pressure that was just grinding on me. Uh, the expectation that, you know, like, oh, Tom went and did this crazy thing and it's going to fail. Whether people were really saying that or not, that was kind of in my head as well. And then there was, there was also a one person who is hopefully got help uh, that was threatening me and I had to report them to the police and so, you know, that I didn't think that was normal, but that just was another thing that weighed on me. Uh, and so, yeah, it was it was just all of that pressure combined and just trying to figure out like each day how to make sure because it was a daily show, how to make sure we delivered on what I knew the audience liked. That's a really good point. It wasn't even something that I thought about coming into this conversation, but your audience must be 10 times mine or 20 times, a very lot larger, which means I know that I deal with a lot of compliments and it feels great. And to your point, I also deal with people who say, I said the wrong thing. I'm dumb. I'm dumb. I'm an asshole. Whatever, you know, whatever it is they say, Hey, you could call them haters. But frankly, to your point, there's a lot of people that aren't haters and their opinion is actually valid. And I'm like, huh, I really did drop the ball there or wow, I misspoke there. Right. So, and, but you have whatever, 10, 20 times that volume, I'd imagine. How do you you talked a little bit about it, but like, how do you deal with that? How do you get, because, you know, and it's relevant to software entrepreneurs because so many of my, so much of my audience is software developers, right? And the first time they write a blog post, the first time they ship some code, the, it's terrifying. It's like, someone's going to criticize me, right? I'm on, I'm at the top of Hacker News and everyone's ragging on me, or I'm on Product Hunt and I'm third and people are saying it's, one person said it was a crappy product. Like mm-hmm. it's this fear of, of criticism or this fear of public failure or whatever it is. You deal with that probably more than most. How have you learned to to live with it without getting, because you don't have a, you don't don't strike me as someone who has a shell that's so hard that it's just like F everyone, right? And right. It's like, that's what politics, I feel like that's what some politicians do or CEOs of big companies, like everyone else is wrong. And that's like, that's not balanced either. Right. So how have you held those two things in tension? Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. I do a lot of things. Some of the things for the stuff that you know is irrelevant, it's just like, you know what, you can get away with not reading the comments in some situations. I have built a show that's based on reading everyone's emails and everyone's comments. So I can't do that as much as, you know, maybe somebody who does a movie who's like, yeah, I'm just not going to read my reviews. There's a little bit of that. There's a little bit of just taking solace in the audience that you do have and saying, you know, like, hey, do you also agree that this is there? And that kind of resets expectations. And if they do agree, they'll say it nicer. But the majority of the time what I've done is I engage. Now, there are a few situations where you can't engage. In fact, somebody dinged us in an Apple podcast review this week for covering AI too much and gave us three out of five stars. And I have no way to respond to it. So it's just sitting there in my brain eating away at me. <laughs> but yep. uh, I'll tell you in a second what I did, what I've done to deal with that. But for the the people who email, I, I often just email back and I give myself time Sometimes I'll even write the response and then delete it so that I'm not responding emotionally. And I, I try to 
recast what they've said in the nicest possible terms and then respond as if they said it that way. A lot of the times, I would say three quarters of the time, the person comes back with a sort of like, oh my gosh, you know, I, I came off so harsh. What I meant was X or, oh, that's, that's really helpful to hear. Thank you. And, and it turns it all around. That helps a lot. Sometimes they don't respond at all. Sometimes they still respond angrily. And honestly, that helps me because if I've made the effort to be nice and then you still respond angrily, I'm like, oh, okay, I can ignore you now. You are unreasonable. And I don't have to think that what you said at the beginning was reasonable but I can still learn something from it. And I, th I think the final thing I usually do is I try to honestly say, is there a way to do something better that will cause someone not to think this? Because usually what they're saying is not what they're mad at. When they're saying like, I hated that you, you called uh, uh, Apple great. They're not saying I hated that you called Apple great. They're saying you don't cover Android enough. So I, I try to look at like, okay, but what's really behind the comment there and, and try to adjust that. I also do a lot of preventative measures like going out and doing surveys and asking people, well, you know, what do you hate about the show? Get it out now. Just let us know. That seems to help a little bit. And then in those cases like that podcast, Apple podcast review, I, I just said on the show today, I was like, hey, I know some people are tired of us covering AI, but it seems to be one of the most important stories right now. So that's why we're covering it. And like, maybe that person heard it. And now I've answered, like, this is why we're covering it that way. But I, I, I usually try to just make, let myself calm down, maybe even write the angry email to get it out of my head and then sort of say, okay, but what can I learn from this? Uh, and that helps some. There's still still times when it just gets to you and you just got to let it, you know, you just got to let it go. No, that's a really, that's a good system you have. Very mature. It's just a very mature way of thinking about it, right? Because it's so easy to get to say everybody's wrong and it's, it's easy to also take offense to it and be too thin skinned. So. Well, yeah. And if you just say everybody's wrong, you don't learn anything and you just keep getting the same criticism over and over again. And, it, but if you learn from it and then they still say the same thing, then at least for me, I'm like, oh, but you're not right anymore because I, I addressed that already. Yeah. That's great. want to mix it up a little bit and ask you about how you're, you're very prolific. You have many podcasts. Uh, I listen to most of them. Daily Tech News Show, Cord Killers with Brian Brushwood. You were doing Current Geek <laughs> with Scott Johnson. I think it's on hiatus or maybe you're, you won't come back to it. I know there was a, a season. It's a thing with Molly, right? And Sword and Laser mm -hmm. as well, which I don't, yeah. I just have never listened to. I don't read a lot of fiction. And know a little more. So I mean, oh, and let's talk about Star Wars. I'm a patron. <laughs> so I and I could keep going. I know there's there's many. That's a lot of podcasts, man. I have three podcasts. I have this one that's shipped every week since 2010. I have one that goes in seasons, and it re I interview a startup founder over the course of a year, so like every month, and then we make one season. So it's like a longitudinal yeah, things. Yeah. But that's it's one conversation, and then there's a producer and a voiceover and blah blah blah. It's highly produced. But that's kind of a thing that happens once a year. And then I have one that I just do intros for where it's like we're pulling content off our YouTube channel, audio content. So, but even that, and I put a YouTube video out every week on our channel, that's a lot, you know? And, and now I have a day job. <laughs> this, these are all part of my day job, but like I do run two companies as I'm doing that. But man, it feels like a ton of content. You, sir, put out w way more than I just described. And I think there, there are a lot of folks in the audience who want to be able to produce more content or to produce it quickly, you know, at a high, at a high quality. How do you, how do you do this? 
<laughs> well, dude, you just said you run two companies. Right. You threw that away. As <laughs> that's just, like, oh, and I also just thing. run two companies. Like I don't have to run. Well, I guess I run the company that's making my podcast, but that's all tight. That's all it does. Right. Right. That's, that's the key is that I do not have the day job. That helps a lot. Yeah. And so is DTNS, Daily Tech News Show, for those who you know aren't getting the, the acronym there, is DTNS like most of your morning and then it's like, are you busy from eight or nine in the morning until two or two thirty with it? And then anything else has to happen after that? Pretty much, you know, the, the short version of, of how Daily Tech News Show gets produced on a day where I'm on the show, I may or may not be in charge of what we call the rundown, which is, you know, what's going to be in the show that day. But it's, it's basically the same whether I am or not. In the morning, I'm looking through my RSS reader. I'm looking through Feedly. I'm marking stories that I think will be interesting. We have a shared Feedly account so we can all mark stories for each other. And then I go walk the dog, have my breakfast, that kind of stuff, come back. And we're on a pretty routine schedule that from 9 to 10 Pacific, we are filling in the rundown. So if you're in charge, you're the one putting stuff in there saying this is going to be the quick hits. These are going to be the discussion stories. If you're not in charge, you're contributing. You're like, oh, I really like this story. Don't miss this one. You've got a little more latitude there. If I'm not doing the rundown, sometimes I'll get a jump on a story I know is going to make it and start writing it. And then from 10 to 11, we're writing up the intros and the notes and things we want to make sure we cover about those stories. And that gets distributed amongst the people working on the show. 11 to 12, is just cleaning up, making sure there's, you know, as few typos as, ne as necessary as possible, uh, looking if there's any gaps, checking to see if there's any late breaking news, you know, whether a bank has had a problem that day that we suddenly have to jump on. And then at 12 o'clock, we have a Discord voice meeting to go over that rundown and be like, okay, how much time are we given to this? Is this right? Are there any last minute adjustments we need to make? And then we get a break for lunch, uh, 1245, we, we jump on StreamYard, do all the tech checks, make sure everything's working. And then we go live one, one to two is the show. Two to two thirty is, uh, any production notes, any post stuff, things we need to talk about, uh, before we're, we're out of there. And, and that can sometimes end early and, and then, yeah. And then I'm off to, to do other stuff in there, depending on the day and what the load is like and whether we have a guest who's producing their own segment, I might have a little time to do some other stuff. I usually have time to do a few things. But yes, Daily Tech News Show is pretty predominant through that part. And the interesting thing is obviously the software entrepreneurs in the audience are like, well, I don't have every day until 2 p.m. to produce a show or a podcast. But that's not the takeaway here. The takeaway is, I think, A, it's you're very disciplined as you're talking in 15-minute increments almost. But also, it's I don't think you rely on your own discipline. My guess is you have to show up because other people rely on you, right? And if you don't show up, it's like the gym having a gym buddy, right? I don't want to go to the gym, but if I told I committed to be in there every day at nine, then I'm going to be there. That's what I think. You know, a lot of folks who do want to put out, let's say, a podcast for their you know company or something on the YouTube channel. The only reason that I ship this show every week, still 13 years in, 650 something episodes. Not the only reason, but a main reason that I don't miss a week is because I haven't missed a week. Yeah. Haven't missed a week. I mean, I got super sick one time and I like recorded an episode. My throat was all, you know, like you hear Ira Glass do this sometimes with This American Life where it's like, ooh, this is rough. But the show must go on, right? It's like you ha you have this rhythm. It's the Jerry Seinfeld X's, right? I write a joke every day. I don't want to break the chain. Yeah. Is there a sense of that for you that it's like, well, this is just what I do. I don't care if I don't, I don't feel like it. There, there's a group of people uh, uh, that are going to show up live. Uh, we, we stream the show on Twitch. Uh, we stream the audio on our Discord. And even though they are not the 
majority audience. The majority audience listens to it on demand later. They're there. They're waiting for us. They're going to say, hey, where'd, where'd you go uh, if you're not there? So yeah, in the past, I have done the show from uh, an airport just sitting out at the gate using airport Wi-Fi to stream. I've done a show from my car when I was moving and I couldn't use my studio because everything was being packed up and put in a truck. And so I just sat in my my car in the garage uh, and did the show from there. Thankfully, we've gotten to a point where if I need the day off, I can take the day off to the show and people will cover, but we still have a show. That has been one of my greatest stresses is making sure that we deliver because of that, like you say, there's that expectation of like, hey, where's the thing? I, I've, I'm expecting the thing. And it it is a habit. Have you missed a day of Daily Tech News show? And not you personally. Has there, has there been a day where there was no show since 2013? Yeah, or 2014, I guess. I don't think there's been a day without a show that wasn't planned. Like we, we take all federal holidays off. That's just, it's, it's my way of not having to have to think uh, too hard about what days are off. So we're like, yeah, if it's a federal, it's on the federal holiday list, we take it off. And then we take Saturdays and Sundays off. But I don't think we've ever had a day where like, oh, sorry, y'all, there was no show. Shows have been moved a couple of times. The very first show was late because I had to go uh, do my, um, <laughs> not TSA pre, but the, what's the, the customs one? Uh, Clear? Oh, the world uh, card? Yeah, whatever that one is, the, the customs thing. I had to go do the interview that, that day and it had been planned months before. <laughs> but yeah, so there's been a couple that have been rescheduled, but we've never missed one. We've never missed one that we intended to do, put it that way. Yeah, it's incredible. I want to ask you about this ability that you have that I think is lost in society today, and it's to see both sides of a story or of a, of a conversation or an argument and it's to be moderate. And I say that like complimentary. Um, I, I know it's kind you, of a dirty word these days. It, right. Like I'm insulting yeah. you, but it's yeah, like, yeah. no, this is, this is the reason that I have listened to you. Cause I listened to you since twi- the twit days. So what are we talking? 12 years, something in there. And it's because when I hear a story from you, I don't expect a spin. And even if there are others around it who are really wound up about it and are saying things, Brian, my words, not yours, Brian Brushwood is hilarious on cord killers, but he just gets spun up about things and he'll just go off and you're like, you like bring him down to earth and you're like, well, maybe, but also here's the other side of that. that uh, Netflix is already yeah, paying yeah. the providers in, in France, you know, the internet provider, like you show the other side of it. Like it's, again, it's, I just don't hear it from many people. And it's, it's a very informed opinion and it's a very Calculate is not the right word, but it's very well considered. And it's as if you're like, no, this is the whole story and I'm going to present it. And you have opinions. You'll have opinions of like, I think they're screwing this up and long term it won't work. But also you're not this extreme, uh, you know, whatever, Joe Rogan type thing is not that's not my style. Right. So how how do you do that? Like, is it natural? Did you have to work on that? As with most things, a little of both. I think I've always been naturally tending to be empathetic. And I, I try not to make that sound like a, a self compliment, but, but sort of always sort of being able to see another person's point of view and understand like, oh, well, this is what they mean by that. I think that that's just one of those things I've been able to do. I'm also a contrarian. <laughs> I am, I have definitely been told that by my family that if there's an opposite side to be taken, I will take it. Uh, and so that, that is part of it too, is like, oh, well, if everybody's thinking this, I'm going to tend to want to be like, yeah, but what's the other side? 
And then you combine that with not wanting someone to be able to write in and say, you got this wrong, makes me like try very hard to really understand because the corrections that I like getting, but also try to avoid are, ah, I understand why you covered the 5G interference with airlines this way. I'm a pilot though. And let me tell you, this is something that most people don't know that we run into. Uh, I love getting those. I value those amazingly, but I do try to be like, okay, what is the pilot going to say about this? And can I find that answer before I have to rely on that person? You can't always do that because no one can have all the experiences, but I do have that motivation to try to, to try to look a little farther behind what people think are the knee jerk motivations. Well, they're doing that because they're greedy or they're doing that because that human motivations are usually much more complex than that. And I've been on the inside at CNET where people were accusing us of things. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm here. I know we're not doing those things. Like, and so I, I also try to go like, okay, but what are the people inside of Facebook thinking when they make this decision? Uh, it, it looks different from the inside than it does from the outside. So all of those things, I guess, if I had to, if I had to come up with a reason, contribute. AI, you're covering it a lot. Which I think is great. And not too much for me, by the way. Question three out of five question, stars. Three out of five though, stars. Because it's too much. It's too much. <laughs> I'm so opinionated about how much your coverage of AI. <laughs> but the question for me is are you using it? Like I find myself, I record a YouTube video every week about building and growing SaaS companies, right? And I'm given a title. My team comes up with a title and says, This is what you get. You know, can you record a video about this? And I say, Yes. And then I think, How am I going to outline this? So I go to Chat GPT sometimes and I'll just type in, outline a YouTube video just to see. And I rarely use more than 20, 30% of it because it's a lot of it's generic internet advice. But I'm curious if in your workflow, anything you're doing, are you using AI to help create content research, any of that? Yeah, I've been trying it and, and I've used it for a few things here and there. It's not good for a lot of the things I do because... I am so focused on what we just talked about, like trying to make sure that I've got all the nuances and, and bringing in the, the, the parts of the story that maybe people aren't considering. And ChatGPT is not good at that because it's trained on the people who aren't doing that. On the other hand, we use it on Sword and Laser, science fiction and fantasy book club podcast to create the artwork that goes in the thumbnail. Uh, my co-host Veronica Belmont uses Midjourney for that. And that has been fantastic doesn't always work perfectly. Sometimes it works hilariously, but we usually get something pretty interesting out of it. I've been using it every so often to aid in writing a paragraph or two of something where I'm like, man, I just really need this summarized well. And I'll put what I put in and say, shorten this up. And it's pretty good at that. I still have to tweak it. It's not like ready made when it comes out, but it, but it helps. It saves a little time. My favorite use of it has been I have an episode of Know a Little More coming out that is about open AI stuff and, and about transformers. And, and so I asked it, I like put in the two paragraphs leading up to it describing how it works, how chat G, I think it's particularly about chat GPT, this, this segment. And then I had chat GPT write the next paragraph and it was really good. <laughs> it like, it nailed that one. It knows itself uh, at least. Any chance you've checked out 11 labs? It's an audio oh, yeah. at generative yeah, AI. I so have. about a month ago, I took my, you can train it with your own voice, snippets of your own voice. So I uploaded snippets of mine and trained it to sound like me. And then I typed out a piece of the intro of this podcast 
and I cut it in just to see if anybody would notice. Mm-hmm. And 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 I called it out in the episode. You know, the Robbot itself called out that I am not. Do I sound funny? Because uh-huh. I am Robbot, right? Right. Some people noticed, but most people said it sounded like you had a cold or you were using a different microphone. It was that close. It was different, uh-huh. but it was really close. So you should do it. It's fun. It's weird. It's weird to hear your own voice. This is where I reveal I've been using it this entire time. The whole time. <laughs> I've been using it for a decade, bro. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, Scott Johnson, uh, one of my fellow podcasters, sent me a clip of myself saying something ridiculous about eating spiders or something in my own voice that he had trained it on. It was my first experience with it. And then I, I had a friend of mine, Allison Sheridan, did a bunch of the intros and outros of a po- of an episode of her podcast using it because she had lost her voice. Wow. And and so it was like a, a it was super helpful for her. And and like you like you did. She called it out. Another friend of mine, Andrew Heaton, did an entire episode of of his political orphanage podcast written by Chat GPT and read by uh either Eleven Labs or one of the similar ones. I can't remember if he used Eleven Labs or not. I cannot imagine doing something long form like that. I like the Chat GPT stuff that's short or the Eleven Labs clip that was short. It was like yeah. I could work with that. The longer it gets, the more off the it's like a copy of a copy type thing where it starts getting off the rails. Yeah. So that must have been mm-hmm. super interesting to hear. Well, Tom Merritt been great having you. Folks want to keep up with what you're up to. Daily Tech News Show, wherever greater podcasts are served, on Patreon as well, obviously, and know a little more. Um, you have five, six other podcasts, but people can find you. And on Twitter, you're at Ace Detect. It's A-C-E. <laughs> if you just search Tom Merritt, that crazy username shows up. Two R's and two T's. Yep. So thanks again so much for taking the time, Tom. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Appreciate it. Really appreciate Tom taking time out of his busy schedule to come on the show. I'll admit, he's one of those people that I really admire, and I've learned a ton from him over the years, and it was great to be able to sit down and get some insights from him. And if you like this show and are interested in tech news or cutting the cord, you know, streaming, TV, or just learning more about technical topics, his podcasts are some of the best out there. Thanks for joining me again this week. This is Rob Walling signing off from episode 654. Welcome. You've made it to the hidden track. When I told my 16-year-old that I was going to be interviewing Tom Merritt, he said, I have to talk to him. My son and I bond over a lot of Tom's shows as we're driving or, or doing whatever, especially like their show, It's Spoiler in Time, which is where they essentially talk about shows that are on the air. So they are doing Last of Us and they do the Star Wars shows that come out, Mandalorian and or And it's great fun. And we're able to hear other people's, other smart, informed people's opinions and compare them to our own. So I let my son come on for a few minutes and just talk to Tom about a few nerdy things. And we're going to roll that right here. Hope you enjoy it. Mr. Merritt, how do you feel about the obvious joke?
Oh, the obvious joke. Uh, the obvious you have joke. To, you have to push the obvious joke to make the obvious joke work. So in order to give the obvious joke merit, you have to be real stretchy with it. <laughs> like that. Good example. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't like the obvious joke if it's just laid out there flat. But yeah, you can you can use it to good effect or you can turn it on its head. One of my favorite things is when it sounds like someone's doing the obvious joke and then at the end it makes a hard left turn and you're like, oh, that was not where I was expecting it to go. All your podcasts have a certain quality to them that makes them really cool and fun to listen to. Oh, thanks. What is that? (laughs) Um, So I can keep doing it. Panache. Okay. All right. Maybe not the adjective that I would have gone for. I mean, there is panache, but I think what makes it amazing is all the the work you put in. I mean, considering your success, it's probably proof that the podcast, there's no big podcast network, but the idea of podcasts are a meritocracy. Mm. Uh Uh-oh. Here he goes. You're not going to do this. (laughs) If only. You're not going to do this the whole time, right? Yeah. No. You're killing me. Now I want to talk about nerd stuff. Okay, cool. Okay, so Star Wars. Yes. What's your favorite Star Wars thing to come off, to come out in the last five years, let's say? Last five years. Five years. So a lot of, I think Clone Wars Season 7 was in there. There's some some good stuff. Bad Batch, Mando, all of that. Andor. Yeah. See, I think Andor is great, but like Brian Brushwood thinks it's the best. He would immediately just say Andor. Uh, and I, I'm almost, I almost want to admit that he's right. <laughs> but then I, I resist, I resist that because I don't want to admit that he's right. Uh, but I, cause I, I didn't have the over the top reaction that he did, but I still really liked it. That first season of Mandalorian was really good too, because again, it subverted expectations and it gave me that feel of Star Wars and the lived universe. And I don't know if you get Andor without the Mandalorian. So I probably will say season one of Mandalorian, which Andor is indebted to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Um, I'm glad that you mentioned Brian because um, one of the things we talk about a lot is kind of the interesting dynamic on the podcast, how Brian's kind of – we mostly listen to your Star Wars and Marvel stuff, and Brian is usually kind of like, I don't like this. And uh, this Bryce, is on spoiler in time, which yeah, is yeah, a spoiler in time. part of Core I need killers, to specify so because you, know. you have so many. Yeah, there's other listeners. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Bryce – tends to like them and you're kind of you you are the cooler head that prevails when those two it's it's an interesting dynamic and i'm wondering how much of that is conscious and how much of that is you guys overplaying versus it's just a really is it natural or exaggerated i guess is my question all of it is natural all of it is real uh i wasn't trying to imply that uh, well this is just like the first half of of the answer which is like we we don't sit down beforehand and say okay you be the you be the negative person but we do exaggerate brian for for sure likes to exaggerate that's that's who he is he's a personality yeah so and and it makes it more interesting to exaggerate as a conversation, but I probably exaggerate the least of them 
<laughs> I, I used to exaggerate more. Like, like I, I used to pick fights with Brian and get him going. Uh, but, but then it's, it started to, to, people started to wonder if we were getting along and I was like, okay, that's probably pushing it too far. We don't want people to think we're mad at each other, but yeah. I th and I think even in the last year or so, it's gotten closer to like, Brian moderating and saying, yeah, there's no, you know, bad episode of this series, but there has to be one worst episode as a way to say like, look, I'm not trying to hate on it, but let me explain what I don't like about it. So yeah, there's, I'd say there's like 18% exaggeration in there. Hmm. That's a good number. That's kind of, that's what we were kind of talking about where it's like, we, f it feels very real and natural, but there is also kind of the sense that maybe Brian is a little bombastic. Yeah. He likes, he likes to push buttons and, and stuff, which is good. It's fun. Okay. Um, so you think, fact check me on this, Rob, but you used to run, you used to do Walking Dead, right? On either Zone Podcast or They did Spoiler in years ago. Yeah. It was on frame rate, I think. Yeah, back in the frame rate days even, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you've discussed this on a podcast, so I'm really sorry if this is redundant information. But as someone who has enjoyed both a lot of Walking Dead and The Last of Us, how do you think those two compare? They almost feel, and I guess literally they are, uh, as if they're from different decades, um, different time periods, right? Walking Dead, again, not to repeat the Mando thing, but I think Last of Us's appeal owes a lot to Walking Dead. And in fact, I wouldn't be surprised, although I don't know this, if Last of Us, the game, didn't owe something to the graphic novels uh, of Walking Dead. Because I think Walking Dead was one of the first to say like, okay, but what if the pro what if we focus on the, the problem being the people uh, more? Now, it, it, and the movies did that a little bit. The Romero movies certainly did that. But, but Walking Dead very quickly said like, the zombies are not really of a, 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 a character with agency in our story. It's going to all be about the people involved. And I think The Last of Us ran with that and said, well, what if we focus even more on, on a couple of characters? And so I think, I, I don't know, I guess The Last of Us is better to me, but only because it learned from our reactions to Walking Dead. Yeah, it does feel very, um, not realistic, but everyone feels almost more grounded, like off in, in The Walking Dead, everyone goes off the deep end. And from there, it's just like, wow, all these people suck. Um, but since The Last of Us is about this connection between Joel and Ellie, it almost feels more personable. And I feel like even that applies to the villains. Because, like, um, what's your face? Uh, the lady who took over the Fedra place and made it kind of almost worse, Caitlin? Catherine? Yeah, yeah, Caitlin, I think is right. I feel like she is more sympathetic than the governor, for example. Oh, for sure, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, like, we haven't seen the finale yet, so please, no spoilers. But um, the evil, the priest, teacher, creepy guy in episode eight felt very Walking Dead-y because he was, like, unhinged and unsympathetic. And that kind of, I don't know, that kind of sparked a conversation of, like, what is what feels different and similar about these two shows. And yeah, I think the human um, connection is really what makes it interesting. I think that's, that's, that's 
a, a normal process with new kinds of stories that are in the same vein where the first one to tell it, like Night of the Living Dead, doesn't have to be complex because people are like, oh my gosh, I've never seen zombies before. So the zombies are new. When we go back and watch it, it looks kind of cookie cutter in some ways because we're like, well, yeah, you don't have to explain zombies. Zombies aren't impressive. We've seen a million zombies. Uh, and and that, that happens in smaller ways too, whereas The Walking Dead, they, they had more space. They didn't have to explain what zombies were anymore. Uh, but they, they had to leave space for you to realize, oh, this is about the interactions of the people. Last of Us benefits from like, oh yeah, we're used to that. Of course, it's always about the people. And so, and so now they have more space to be like, okay, we don't have to explain this is about the people. You know, we don't have to leave space for that. We can focus in a little more. But then there's some characters like Creepy Guy that it's like, yeah, it's still, it's still a good character type. Maybe we'll drag that one out anyway. Yeah, it's an interesting choice. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned Light of the Night of the Living Dead. Um, I do feel like there's almost... That one does have like the barest hints of kind of a more complex thing because the zombies are yeah. definitely the start of the show. But like, spoilers for a 60-year-old movie, by the way. But like at the end, uh, the guy gets shot because they just think he's a zombie. And I think that's like a really, it was a real gut punch moment for me the first time I saw it. And I think it kind of, it's it, it was like an accident and it's not due to like humans going crazy when civilization falls, but it does have that hints of like, this guy survived all this just to get shot by the people who should be helping him. And it it's- yeah, those are those timeless elements of a story, right? Being really friggin' sad. <laughs> yeah, or Old Yeller, no spoilers. Bridge to Terabithia. <laughs> yeah. Romeo and Juliet, I won't tell you how that one ends, but Ooh, <laughs> I'm sure you, you've answered this somewhere else, but I don't remember. Uh, so thoughts on The Last Jedi? The Ryan, Ryan Johnson one. Star yeah, Wars yeah. The Last Jedi, yeah. Ryan Johnson. Yes. So episode eight. Episode nine? Wait, yeah. no, that's Rise of Skywalker. Uh, Wait, that, Rise of Skywalker? Well, that's why I asked. I was like, okay, it's not the last movie. You're <laughs> the last Jedi. Yes, the last um, Jedi. I like the last Jedi. and Good, thank you. Me I, too. I only dislike that they didn't have Abrams and Johnson cooperate more because it did feel a little bit like a tug of war of like, oh, you were taking the story this way. Well, I'm going to take the story this way. But- Outside of that, I thought it was a really good story. Uh, and there are a couple parts here and there, like in any movie, where I'm like, eh, that, that didn't work for me as much. But but overall, the the way they handled the the force timing between them, where they're, they're talking uh, through the force, I thought was really cool and really interesting. Well, if you think about all, you know, 4, 5, and 6, their original trilogy, Vader and Luke or Vader and Obi-Wan could only communicate when they were together and it's like you can't just have them together that much but the story might be better if they were talking and they were able to do that with this force time of like you have these two arch enemies so that when they do finally get together they can just fight and not have to have this long diatribe of when i met you i was but a learner no i'm the you know it's like okay get on with the fight right so i, I feel like force time allowed was a really nice narrative narrative device yeah yeah okay also just for the record both of you probably know that but it is called a dyad just I appreciate Force Time, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page here as a Star Wars nerd. Oh, a, a, a dyad in the Force. That's like the technical term for it? Got it. Yes, definitely. Force Time, great. I am, I'm glad to hear you say that because my most unpopular movie opinion is that The Last Jedi is really good, actually. <laughs> yeah. I and I wrote a whole essay on it. I don't know it, why so people hate on I that always, movie. That's my yeah. litmus test for There are certainly taste. little things about it you can pick on, but I don't know why people hate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Definitely. 
I feel like it almost gets dragged down by Rise of Skywalker because it like sets up so much and the ninth movie. But I, I knew a lot of people who are already against it even before Rise of Skywalker yeah. who were then undermined because they're like, you'll see, Rise of Skywalker <laughs> yeah, yeah, is yeah. going to be better. But yeah. Yeah, I hear people nowadays go like, oh, they, they set this up and never paid it off. And I'm like, that's not Johnson's fault. Eight, Taken yeah. in a Vacuum is a great movie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Cool. I'm glad we agree on that. Um, this is a really fun, if brief, uh, nerd diatribe. And I... Yeah, man. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks for saying hi. It's good to meet you. <laughs>